Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Ivan Carter, you could call him a wildlife conservationist. Yes, he's been a professional hunter once in his career, but today he runs the Ivan Carter Wildlife Alliance in which he gets involved in multiple wildlife conservation projects all across Africa. He was a part of the Cabela Family Foundation 24 Lions project. Uh, he has moved the largest amount of elephants in Mozambique in the elephant conservation project. He works with giraffes, chimpanzees, wild dogs, you name it. So I wanted to have Ivan on here because he's a very much a realist and a pragmatist when it comes to wildlife conservation, especially in light of the big tusker that got killed in Botswana. I wanted to ask him some sort of reality questions, like what would happen if that elephant wasn't taken? Should we not have taken that elephant? What about the genetics? What about the gene pool implications? Was it merely a trophy hunt and not a conservation hunt? All these questions that have been flooding in and have caused very, very good dialogue and discussion. I wanted to have that with someone I respected from a wildlife conservation perspective. Ivan is not an elephant biologist by training. He's not a professor in elephant biology. But he has a good deal of practical knowledge around wildlife conservation in general, as well as a good solid basis understanding of elephant ecology. And so I wanted to have this conversation with him. 
So obviously, the whole point of what we do, and this is where I want to, I pride myself and I'm very, you know, we had a conversation about, as you say, ban and delete. Yeah. But I pride myself in making sure that I have the best knowledge that I possibly have around the subject. I'm not going to know everything, but I'm going to have as, as factual a based information as I possibly can. And if that information happens to be wrong, I'll, for instance, give you an example. In the original Facebook post, I said that Botswana and elephant populations are exploding. After doing a little bit more digging, after doing some digging with elephants without borders, looking at census data from 2014 and 2018, elephant populations in Botswana are at an all-time high. They reckon the best number is about 130,000 elephants. And the census data says that in 2014, there were about 128,000. In 2018, there were about 130,000. So dare I say that the elephant population has stabilized. And so I changed my, I changed the post to edit that information, thanks to uh, some folks that had pointed that out. Now, because I had that information out there, because we want to put factual information out there, and as typical in the past, maybe, hunting in controversial situations do not like to put any information out there. All of that information has now been picked up and put into news articles. <laughs> but would we prefer good factual information in news articles versus the drivel that is typically said? Of course we would. And so that's that's the blessing here, is that um, we have good information, the best information to our knowledge, in these news articles. And um, because of this conversation, more people will have more knowledge. People will do their own research. People will be able to think a little bit more. And that's what we want to continue to do, is continue to push people's thought processes about in general, wildlife conservation, but today elephant conservation. So, Ivan Carter, always a pleasure, my man. Nice to see you, my friend. And um, yeah, amid this enormous storm of, as you quite rightly said, bad information, poor information, um, misrepresented information. You know, I, I think that, Robbie, one of the things that, that you do and that you've been known for and that, that a lot of our relationship has been based on is your your hunger and your quest for the factual truth, not the opinion. And I think that you know that that's a really important thing when you're dealing with an emotional an emotional topic, and this really is an emotional topic, is to base everything that you say on facts, not opinions. Because I can mm -hmm. all day long say I think this should happen, I think that should happen, I think this is accurate. Well, by virtue of the word think in that sentence, it, it, it just becomes my opinion. And who am I to have an opinion about something, a, a topic that, you know, people have put tens of thousands of hours of research into. And so, you know, I think that what one should start with, with any of these things is the facts. And unfortunately, uh, you know, hunting, any kind of management of wildlife um, through social media, it, it's a popular discussion. And I would say that one of the facts is that the vast majority of people taking part in that discussion do not have the facts 
by virtue of the fact they're not scientists, they haven't done or read the research, and I'm saying most people. Some people have, but mm -hmm. the facts are what speak the most loudly. And so, you know, I think... So, Ivan, let's, uh, before you dive into that, why don't you, so that people have a context to who you are and why am I speaking to this guy, Ivan Carter, about elephant conservation? He may be just some wahoo off the street that decide, I decided to, to pull in because he's got an opinion about elephants that may be pro-hunting, dare I say, or pro-conservation. So why don't you just give a little bit of a resume to who you are uh, well, that'll help Heath from a context perspective. Well, let's hope that the resume convinces them I'm not just a Yahoo off the street that you, you hollered out your back door and found today. So, <laughs> But um, yeah, Robbie, as you know, I've, I've been in in conservation circles and in some way, shape or form involved with wildlife for 30 years. Um, you know, I started my career guiding and, and hunting across Africa, um, spent a giant amount of time um, in, in, in pursuit of wild and remote areas and in pursuit of some of the species that live there. Um, following, following, you know, many, many years of doing that, I realized there's not enough people really doing enough that really is effective on the front line. When you look at the millions of dollars that flow into conservation and, and the fact that our wildlife is still in trouble, it shows that a lot of that money is ineffective. Um, mm -hmm. So today we, we spend a lot of time creating uh, films about conservation. They're not wildlife films, they're conservation films. And there's a, a, very, a very big difference between the two. A conservation film is a film that talks about the plight of an animal, the solution and the people you know, putting that solution into place. It's not just a, a, a film about, you know, the beauty of an African cheetah or a, you know, a mountain gorilla or an elephant. And those films are very valuable. However, we talk much more about the conservation of those species, the people behind that conservation. And as a result of generating those films, we, we have started a foundation, um, the Wildlife Conservation Alliance. And so we pride ourselves in being very, very effective in, you know, expanding the wild home ranges of certain species, of stabilizing landscapes, and of doing conservation in a way that's a little different, but in a way that's truly effective. So, yeah, Robbie, I mean, a lot of people would look at me and say, oh, well, you've been an elephant hunter for 30 years. Well, that is absolutely the truth. Or you've been a bird watcher for 30 years. Absolutely the truth. You've been a conservationist for 30 years. Absolutely the truth. So depending on where the conversation lies, that is, um, you know, that, that's the hat that I'm going to have on. And so right now, for this conversation today, I'm going to have a, a, a very much of a, a conservative conservationist's hat on, because I mm -hmm. think that, Robbie, that is a voice that the world needs to see and needs to hear. And, you know, we, we are all about, you know, making less impact on the planet. That's where the conversation is going. And so I'm going to start with one fact, and that is the fact that social media has for the first time ever in history given everyone a voice. And everyone has mm -hmm. got the right to express themselves on social media, whether or not they know the topic. And so right. you get a lot of emotionally driven posts and opinions and emotions that are displayed on social media, whereas if this was 15 years ago, people may have felt and thought that, but they had no way of getting to the person that may have said it getting to talk to the person that may be thinking it or showing their their emotion or their feeling through a post that goes out on public. And so I think that mm -hmm. there's no less news media around the topic. 
but there's a lot more engagement through social media. And so, but do do you think that that engagement is a good thing, Ivan? Do you think that in fifteen, you know, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, you didn't have the opportunity to have a dialogue, or maybe you did? I, I just does so social it took media. A, it took a lot more effort to have a dialogue fifteen mm-hmm. years ago, and today. Mm-hmm. I can see a picture on social media, and I don't do social media, by the way. I, 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 we have, have very active pages, but I try very hard to spend my time putting stuff out there rather than engaging. Um, and, and so today, you can see a, 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 a one-and-a-half-second clip out of someone's life or an animal's life. Make up your mind whether that speaks to you and make a comment. It can be a picture of somebody dragging a child across a road with the intention of beating that child, you assume, but you don't know what happened before that. You don't know what happened after that. You're going to judge that moment by that little video clip and put a comment there or share it Mm -hmm. or like it or dislike it or have an opinion. You can take a, a trophy photo of an elephant and that will have the same effect. You can have a photo of you know, a particular military going into a particular situation, it'll have a similar effect. So it gives people this opportunity to scroll through and make a snap decision based on three seconds of education. Never before Mm -hmm. in history have we been allowed to make a decision about something we feel having seen it for three seconds. And so Mm -hmm. if it's, if it's framed incorrectly, it, it can be taken very much the wrong way. And the unfortunate part of of the conservation through hunting model of which I'm a great proponent is Robbie, the simple fact that it takes a discussion. It's not something that is obvious without that discussion. And right. so, right. you know, the first thing that's, that's why we're here. That's exactly why we're here. That's why we're having this conversation. So, you know, a lot of people will tell you a lot of the narrative will say there's you know, the animal that was killed, in this case, this big elephant, um, the person didn't pay enough money to kill an elephant. That yeah, time. so let's talk, about, let's talk about the money. Let's start there. So let's ask this question. What is the right amount of money? What is it? So I had a, I had a podcast with Richard Sowry. Um, phenomenal individual. Uh, close I don't friend know, you know of mine, Richard by the way. Is? Very close friend oh, of mine. Oh, yeah, yeah. So unbelievably, to our, unbeknownst to us, our, pa- our paths actually crossed 22, 20, 22 years ago um, when I was a master's student in, in South Africa living in Kruger. And we were at a science conference and we just figured it out that we actually knew the same people, lived in, were in the same place. But his face was familiar to me. Wasn't you know, his face, he said my face is familiar to him. But Richard had a very good point. He said, you know, a general animal has a certain value tied to it, you know, because it's common. When something becomes highly prized, highly valued, highly commoditized, and I hate, and I say commoditized very, very purposely here, um, then you can ask more and people will pay more. For instance, he used an example of, a, of a, an old elephant in Kruger National Park, one of the big tuskers, Mandlev. Mandlev, at 35 years old, was a 65-pounder. At 56, he was close to a 100-pounder, if not over a 100-pounder. 
based on some uh, roundtable discussions that he had had, they believed that that elephant could have reached up to a million dollars that somebody was going to be willing to pay for that elephant to be hunted at the last year of its life versus at 35 be the stack standard, whatever the price of an elephant bull was, $35,000, $40,000. So you're talking about orders of magnitude more value. So here's, I'm going to approach it from a slightly different perspective. I agree wholeheartedly on what you're talking about, totally wholeheartedly. But let's come to this particular scenario in Botswana where this elephant was not identified as a a particular target or non-target or whatever. but let Unknown. Me, unknown to anyone. Unknown to anybody. And so I want to talk about the cost of hunting an elephant. So if you're in Zimbabwe, you're going to pay 40 or 50 grand. If it's an area that might yield a slightly bigger elephant, you're going to pay a bit more. Right to Richard Sowry's point. If you are going to go and buy a diamond, you're going to expect to pay more for a rarer diamond that's larger. It's just how mm -hmm. life goes. So mm -hmm. people are prepared to pay more for an animal that is large. So let us look at Botswana as a whole. So if you were to say Botswana as a whole, on average, is about $25,000 more per elephant that's hunted in that landscape. And let's, let's say for a moment uh, which is, it's probably very close to this number. I'm not sure the exact number that will, will be hunted this year, but probably between 400 and 450 elephants. So I want to talk about... Yeah, 400 on quota in yeah. 2022. Yes, so there's also going to be a few community elephants or, or whatever. So I'm just going to do the maths here very quickly and say, you know, so 400 times 25,000 extra. So that's $10 million. If you say to people, you're not but, allowed... Adam, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That, that's good math, but let's we have to put some assumptions around it, right? And this so is let, where let we, me have, just, to be, let we me have to just play devil's the advocate. Thought. Let me finish Go the ahead. thought for a minute. So let's imagine because of this particular event, we say nobody is allowed to shoot an elephant in Botswana. That's an excess of 70 pounds, let's just say. 70 okay. pounds aside. You now have an elephant that the ceiling of which is no different to a, a, a lucky hunt in southeastern Zimbabwe or a hunt in northern Kruger or, or any one of these other landscapes. So therefore, as a whole, your cost per hunt is probably going to come down by 25 grand. So year upon year, because every single year, it's not just this year, but every year that there's hunting in Botswana, there's several large bulls that come out of Botswana. And by virtue of the fact that by booking a hunt in, in Botswana, you might just come across one, people are prepared to pay more for the chance, even if they don't, but for the chance. Mm -hmm. So if you said to me, Ivan, what is the value of this particular elephant being killed for $80,000? I would say, well, the value is $10 million. You say, well, how on earth do you get $10 million? Well, by virtue of that, he, that elephant has proved to the hunting community that elephants like that exist and you can legally and ethically hunt one. Therefore, mm -hmm. to the community, the hunting community, to the communities that own the elephants on the ground, the, the, the tribal communities, to the outfitters, to the anti-poaching, that elephant has allowed them to charge 25 grand more across 400 permits 
which is $10 million extra to the industry. As soon as they lower the ceiling of what you're allowed, that elephant now dies of old age, doesn't generate a single cent of income because he's died of old age, and the overall cost of an elephant in Botswana, in other words, the amount of money that goes to community and anti-poaching and everything else, is diminished. And so, really, when I look at it, Robbie, I have a little bit different outlook to most people because I'm looking very much at the big picture, not just this particular elephant. And mm -hmm. so, if you were to say to me, Ivan, we are going to stop all hunting of elephants over 70, what is that going to do to the cost of elephant in Botswana? I'm going to tell you right now, the cost is going to go down. So then you say to, I would like to ask this question. How many people that go on safari on a photographic non-hunting safari in Botswana would expect to pay less because that elephant is not in the ecosystem? Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point because they don't know it's there, right? Well, specifically this one, right? Well, they don't know it's there. Um, and so I completely agree with a named and regular bull in Kruger National Park is a very different scenario to a nomadic bull like this where he show me a photo from a photographic institution that's got this elephant in it. Show me a single individual that is expecting to pay less because they didn't see an elephant like this. Show mm -hmm. me an individual that is going to pay more because they might have a 1% chance of seeing a big elephant. Photographic tourism doesn't work that way, Robbie. And so trying to put a photographic value on a bull like this is also, I'm just telling you the facts. This is nothing but facts. Remember how we started the conversation. This is just going to be about fact. There's not a single person on the planet that is going to pay less money because that bull doesn't exist anymore. Because they're going to go on their photographic safari. They're going to see a bunch of elephants. If they see a big tusker, they're going to be excited by it. And they're going to photograph it. But if they don't, they're not going to feel let down because there's a mm -hmm. lot of elephants that will very well satisfy a photographic tourist. And so okay. from a hunting perspective, where weight and size really does matter, we come back to responsible use of our resources. So you and I have had these conversations before. When is an animal most ethically harvested? So let's let's so you talked about the money, okay? That's a very good that's something that gets we get hammered on the most. Is where does the money go? I, I don't want to get into the conversation about where money goes. You know, in Botswana, as Leon articulated in his podcast, they've set up a trust in this place. The money goes directly to the trust. Um, that was news to me that it didn't go into the government's coffers and then down into the trust. The government has their own fees that they get taken, but. The next level I want to talk about beyond, so the money is, it makes sense, right? It makes sense that because of the chance, people will be willing to pay more. So the, the, one of the biggest arguments that was placed against the bull being taken was about the rarity of the bull itself and the rarity tied to that that genetic makeup of that bull and its propensity for being lost in the gene pool because of its death. Okay, so there's two questions here, Ivan, because I have struggled. So I'll, let's talk about rarity first. I have been hammered and nobody can give me data. I can't find data that there are only a dozen 
or two dozen, or I've heard the largest number I've seen is 36. Big tuskers, i.e. over 100 pounders, left in Africa. So, in reply to that, how do people know that? So, there's certain landscapes, I'm not going to mention them on open forum, but there's certain landscapes where there is a great propensity to have big tusk elephants. The one I will mention is Kruger National Park, where they log and they follow these big elephants, they log and they follow the up-and-comers. What they find is that the vast majority of them in, a, in an area like Kruger that has got you know, arguably at capacity or above capacity number of elephants is the young bulls start killing the older bulls when they, their tusks get too big to defend themselves. So mm. let us talk a little bit about genetics and let us talk a little bit about elephant biology. And again, I'm just going to stick to facts here, Robbie, because mm -hmm. this is all about mm -hmm. just facts. It's only facts. And nobody's going to jump on here and say, you guys are full of it because you told us facts. So here's the facts is an elephant bull is able to breed. In other words, he has sperm in his late teens and early 20s. But usually he's not socially ready to breed, much like a human, actually. Okay. So he's going to get ready to breed. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that's, that's how true. it is. That's you true. So, so he's going to be getting ready to breed in his late 20s and his early 30s. He's going to get into his last set of teeth in his early 40s. That's just a little bit about their age criteria. So he's going to have, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 years of breeding before he dies naturally. This bull... So what would you say the, the, the key, the, 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 the perfect, not the perfect, but the, the most average age range that the science is saying is the, the, the sort of prime, not that, and, and I've looked at the science. So let me put it this way. My words here breeding like when is he the top when he is the sort of the man that can breed prime. and breeds regularly right so again similar to humans so as a human you are getting into your prime in your mid-20s an elephant and and that's a time where in your mid-20s you every you know human beings are at their most virile millions of studies have showed that an elephant is getting into that late 20s, early 30s, where he's strong, he's big enough, he's, you know, he's he's a virile individual. And so he's going to breed very strongly during that time. Now, a large tusker, again, research has shown, this is not my research, is that as their tusks get, get bigger, they grow exponentially. The older the elephant gets, the faster the ivory grows. And so mm -hmm. Richard Sari would have probably showed you a few photos of some elephants through the course of their lives, and you'll be shocked mm -hmm. at how much they grew the last five years of their life because right. it gets faster and faster. It also, you've got 100 pounds of ivory that's, you know, eight feet long sticking out of each side of your mouth. It becomes incredibly difficult to breed for nothing other than physically becomes difficult. Now, there's examples. In fact, there's a video out there of one of the very large tuskers that was in, in, in Tsavo actually breeding as a very large tusker. That is the exception rather than the rule. And so my argument would be, let's get back to what is responsible use of a wildlife resource is for it to be harvested in its sunset years, in the last couple or three or five years of its life. 
And so I would argue that that bull that was harvested was probably in his last set of teeth. So he probably has an excess of 10 years worth of breeding behind him. And his sons are going to be breeding long before they reach 100 pounds, as he did. He was breeding when he was a 50 and a 60 and a 70 pounder. And so he has passed on his genetics. His sons have passed on his genetics. He is one of many who got those genetics from his father. And so if his father bred for 15 years and his, so what my point is, Robbie, is that if your hunting activities are confined to old bulls, it's much less dangerous for the population. Shooting a 60 pounder that nobody worries about that you actually see as only 30 years old is far worse than shooting a 100 pounder that's in his last set of teeth. Because a 60-pounder at 30 years old is on his way to becoming a 100-pounder. And he got shot when he was in his prime because mm. of any one of a number of reasons. And so if we really look at age instead of size, then a lot of this conversation becomes a moot point. So if people say, well, there's only 35 elephants that are 100-pounders in the world. Absolutely. But how do you know how many are up and coming? There might be 300 that are up and coming. Half of them get killed by poaching. The other half get killed by other elephants. Some of them die because of drought. You know, walking with that ivory is a lot harder than if you don't have that ivory, if you are stressed and it's a drought. So who dies first? Ivan, is, it a, is, it a, is it a fair comparison to say, you used humans as a, as a good corollary here. Is it a fair comparison to say, we don't also see a lot of over 100-year-old humans? Uh, walking the landscape because of factors that happen, at, you know, as you get closer and closer to the, to the end of your life. As you said, there's lots of things that happen in an elephant's life at 48, 49, 50 that are not happening to him at 35 through 40. So um, here's, what I, here's what I think happens is, so if you go and you look at the age the actual science that shows the age of the elephants that are taken in Botswana. So every year in Botswana, every lower jaw is kept and it's aged. And, an, and a, a, a spreadsheet is built based on where that elephant was killed, what its ivory size was, and the age of it according to its teeth. And what they find is that every year, contrary to popular belief, the oldest elephants are usually in their mid to late 40s. They're not in the 50 and 60-year-old 60, 60 range. And so what's ended up happening is people have overestimated the age of an elephant. And I think what we also have a tendency to do as human beings is look at lion research from Serengeti and compare that to lion research from Kruger and expect it to yield the same results. Well, an elephant mm. population in somewhere like Botswana, where that individual has had to walk for many, many, many miles just to get enough water, he's living in a very arid environment, He's a larger animal physically than the elephants that are habitually in, in you know, northern Zimbabwe or, or Zambia or whatever. So he is, he has got a slightly different race, not a different family. He still locks it on to Africana, but he lives a hard life, walking for miles and miles to water. So he's not as long lived as the elephant that lives in a lush tropical environment, um, which has got no, no water stress on him. You know, look at the difference between the, the, again, let's put it back to humans because that's something we all understand. You look at someone that's had an incredibly hard life in the outdoors versus someone that's had a very privileged life on the indoors. 
and you very often find that reflected in their longevity. And so, mm-hmm. Robbie, I think let's get back to facts here. Is that so? If the argument is that by shooting this elephant, it's it's endangering the genetics of that. That is an assumption that he's only breeding when he's got long tusks. Well, the the, the science. There's only one science paper that I found, and it came out of Kenya, that showed, and it didn't show breeding success. I want to be clear about this. The science showed that the older the elephant got, the more reproductive he got. And the, the, the reproductive metric that they used was must. What they their must they period used, gets longer. That's exactly right. The must period got much, much longer the older they got, yep. which they then, you know, reproductively, they are more reproductively, quote-unquote, ready and active. But it does not translate. No, I'm not going to say that. There was, there was no point, there was nothing in the paper that suggested that that animal was breeding more frequently. But again, I come back cycle. to the point. You have to make the assumption that he was because he was more reproductively active. Well, he may have had the intention to, but because of his tusk size, and you have to then ask yourself, why are so many of these larger tuskers getting killed by younger bulls? They're not getting killed because they want to eat the same tree. They're getting killed because they both arrive there in must at a female and, and off we go. And so, again, Robbie, let's, let's come back to the fact of the matter. If you could convince me that a big tusker only breeds when he's a big tusker, then I would tell you we should never shoot one. But if you mm-hmm. tell me that a big tusker has been breeding for 15 years before he became a big tusker, and it's only when he became a big tusker and was in his last three or four years of life he was harvested that led to an entire industry being able to charge collectively $10 million more. Is that a good price for a big tusker, $10 million of revenue? In my opinion, yes. So is there anything to be gained from not shooting that elephant from a human perspective, from a revenue generation, from a – if we're looking at the cold, hard business of conservation – One thing a lot of people forget is that conservation costs money. People hate the argument that the money from hunting goes into conservation. They try and convince us it doesn't. Well, if you look at the Botswana model, you have to pay the community. So they benefit from their wildlife. Everybody agrees that's a good thing. You have to have anti-poaching. So everybody benefits from that. It's there. It's in black and white. Part of that money goes to anti-poaching. And so we're not talking about this particular elephant generating more money we're talking about this particular elephant being one of the elephants that influences the entire industry in that country and allows it to be 10 million dollars richer and Mm -hmm. the more value we can put on wildlife to governments to communities to to conservation the the longer the the future is going to be for that wildlife so if you look in southern tanzania there's parts of that landscape where there are no elephants she says, why aren't there any elephants? Well, there was never the money to protect them. Well, why not? Because they stopped hunting and those landscapes have gone back to the communities. So the wildlife is the only thing that suffers. And again, Robbie, let's come back to, let's come back to, to reality here. There's 8 billion of us on the planet, 8 billion people. We all mm-hmm. need to eat, we all need to drink, and we all need to have somewhere to live. When you start looking at the proportion of the planet that is 
taken over by where we live and where we grow our food, you realize that this wildlife is compressed onto these little tiny islands. And how are those islands to pay for themselves if not by the harvesting of that wildlife? And so people say, oh, well, they'll figure it out. Well, who's they? We are they. And we have figured it out. They just don't like the model. So I did a, a very interesting piece just recently. Um, I was next to a, an orange orchard in northern South mm -hmm. Africa. On one side of the orange orchard was a wildlife area that was hunted, full of animals, yep. all the big five and everything else. On the other side of the orange orchard, and by the way, I am pro-agriculture, just to make that completely clear, because I also like to eat good food. And, but I think you're also pro-ecotourism, let's be honest. A hundred percent. And so on one side of that orange orchard is a farmer that never gets harassed. He's never asked how much he's doing for the community. Nobody ever inquires in his books about whether he's giving any of his money away to anything other than his back pocket. And we all support him by virtue of the fact that we drink orange juice. On the other side of the fence is a guy with a natural ecosystem who's scratching and scraping to pay for his anti-poaching and for his fencing and his water points and his, you know, everything that goes into conservation. And because he does that through the harvesting of some of the animals that he is the custodian of, he receives hate mail. He has to show how he's built schools and clinics and whatever else. The orange farmer, who's infinitely more wealthy, is not being asked any of that stuff. How is that mm -hmm. fair if we put value on our ecosystem? Surely the person who's a custodian of a healthy ecosystem should be put on a pedestal and applauded. However, he is doing that. And so. But at the end of the day, Ivan, the problem is we kill animals. Yes, absolutely. And, and I maybe because of that fact, we have to be we have to show more of the environmental, economic, and social sustainability of the action because of the fact that we kill. No, I agree with that 100%. And yet at the same time, if we look at, and I'm going to throw myself out there for a bit here, is in order that you can eat tofu, you have to have a soybean field. I'd like you to go bird watching or game viewing in a soybean field and come back and tell me what you saw there. Tell me how many mm -hmm. wild, natural creatures you saw on your game drive through a soybean field, which is where we grow our food so that we can have tofu and soy sauce and all of the other things. Soy is a, something that I choose because it's such a widely used thing and, and there's billions of acres of land. I mean, we sit here and we drink a cup of coffee where every single coffee plant in the world grows where there used to be a rainforest. But because we like coffee, we don't want to demonize coffee, so we'd rather demonize the oil palms. Well, <laughs> is there anything different? And so really when we look at it, it's what I call uncomfortable truths, Robbie. And as soon as you face people with uncomfortable truths, they just, you know, they ban and delete in our direction, and um, they're, they're on down the way to, to hear, find somebody who agrees with them. And the reality is, let's get back to the the, the business at hand here. Um, you know, somebody posts a picture. Let, let's let's look at the rollout here. Someone, first of all, shoots an elephant that allows the whole community to charge more for their elephants. The photo of that elephant ends up on social media, creates mm -hmm. this enormous storm on social media where most of the places that the storm is happening. All they have is the photo of that elephant and a bunch of assumptions. 
They're not facts, Correct. just assumptions. The storm arrives. Mr. and Mrs. Joe Soap from down the road open their Instagram. Big Tusker shot. This should never happen. Don't you agree? Of course I agree. I don't know anything. So I agree. Right. This right. is terrible, I type. So I add to that algorithm. Instagram picks up that algorithm. It becomes this this thing. And so let's go back to Cecil the Lion. And as much as I hate to even discuss it, Cecil the <laughs> Lion led to many, many. So, so Cecil the Lion, this is the crawl, walk, run of how that unfolded. And again, it's an uncomfortable truth. So a guy killed a lion. Everybody got up in arms. The, the lion that was killed led to a whole shutdown of the importation of lion trophies into America. America being the marketplace for lion hunting, the main marketplace. The price of a lion hunt then went through the floor. I want to be clear here. Not one less lion was hunted because America stopped. Just Europeans and, and other folks were able to hunt them much cheaper. So the lions still died. That's a very important point. Mm -hmm. Then many, many outfitters, particularly in Tanzania, were unable to make their business model work given their obligations to community financially and given their obligations to the government. And so they actually handed their concessions back to government. 15 million acres of them were handed back to government. And it sat fallow. Well, of course, the anti-hunting community was rubbing their hands in glee. This is great. We've got lion hunting shut down. Well, 15 million acres of land that used to be protected by hunters' dollars is now sitting empty. And last year, they resettled it with communities that what's the first thing you do if you move on to new land with your cattle and your goats and your bag full of corn seeds is you eliminate any threats to your livelihood. So that's sure. predators. And so as we sit today, 15 million acres has been lost forever for wildlife because of that shutdown. So is mm -hmm. that a win for the anti-hunter? Do you think the anti-hunter, when he hears that, says, wow, that's great. I'm so glad they're not hunting there anymore. Well, the lions have all gone. Well, that's great. As long as they're not hunting, I'm happy. Well, they're planting right. orange trees. That's great. As long as they're not hunting, I'm happy. Well, everything mm -hmm. died there. Well, as long as it wasn't hunted, I'm happy. Well, it's scorched mm -hmm. earth. Well, as long as it wasn't hunted, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm happy. And so, mm -hmm. really, Robbie, you look at this and you say, at what point will they say, yes, that's a solution? I don't think there is a point because they carry on down the, down the road. And, you know, I don't think that many people really realize the, the amount of conservation benefit that comes from this action. And there's so many people that, that despise the action. I'm fearful that millions more acres are going to be lost because of things like this outbreak right now. So let's talk about so the, the despising of the action. We are not saying that hunting elephants is the only solution to elephant conservation. So what are the alternative solutions here, Ivan? What are the alternative solutions to this scenario? So let me go back a step to a question. Of, this ele of, of elephant conservation in Botswana, say. So let me go back a step. So, again, some uncomfortable truths. A certain number of individuals worked very, very hard to get elephant hunting stopped in Botswana. All hunting stopped. And they made claims like, 
if they stop hunting, we will employ everyone from the hunting communities. We will continue to pump the water holes that have been pumped for 30 years. And of course, those were merely claims. Many of these hunting concessions were put out to tender for photographic concessionaires to take over and generate funding from photographics. But guess what, Robbie? Nobody took them because it's marginal land that's only got elephant. And so now we start looking at... at when you the, say marginal land, the people that don't have any idea, what, what are you talking about? I'm talking about very flat areas of potentially thick bush without a lot of visible wildlife. And so you as a tourist have two weeks of safari. Do you want to go somewhere where it's incredibly beautiful? You're going to see a lot of wildlife and have lions lying next to the truck and, and you know this diverse ecosystem and, and a, a beautiful camp and lots of water. Or do you want to go to a place where all you're going to see is elephants and a fairly flat desert-like bush? And so obviously the answer is I, I want to go to where there's this prolific wildlife population. I've only got two weeks to do it in, and there's a few e exceptions. But your vast majority of paying tourists – they want to go where all the animals are, which is why we've got these certain hotspots across Africa where all the tourists go, where there's great visibility. There's a big variety of species. It's easy to get to. There's not bad diseases. The rainy season is, 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 is well managed. You know, all, all of these things. And so, Robbie, the question people don't ask is why is conservation more expensive today than it ever was? Well, there's more people on the planet. There's more people in Africa living on or below the breadline than ever before. So there's greater pressure on resources that can translate to food or income than ever before. So therefore, those resources require better protection and better protection costs more money. And so it's mm -hmm. very, very difficult to find a model that really works without philanthropy to protecting wildlife and keeping an eco ecosystem intact. When what about carbon credits and biodiversity credits and all that kind of stuff? Aren't these alternative solutions potentially for these marginal areas that then could generate some more income versus having to hunt the elephant to generate the income? So, Robbie, I think that they probably are, but I haven't seen any of them physically working. And if they were going to work, they would be working. So show me somebody who's got a nice big bank account because I've got a two million acre concession in Botswana and I would rather not hunt it if someone can give me, you know, half a million dollars a year to protect it. I'd love that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be hunting. I'm pro-conservation, however we get there, whether it's through photographic tourism, whether it's through carbon credits, whether it's through, you know, selling whatever, you know, you, you've got the, these, these, non-defungible tokens or, or whatever. I'm not even probably saying the word right because I've heard it. <laughs> I've heard it so many times, Robbie, and I'm yet to see a cent of it. Somebody phoned me the other day and said, oh, I believe you're translocating leopards. I said, yes, we are. We're going to put leopards from an area where there's lots into an area where there's few. Well, do you mind if we sell tokens from it and all of your expenses will recover and you can put that money into leopard conservation? Absolutely. Go and sell them. Ask me how many dollars I received. Zero. Zero. Because everyone says, oh, people want to sit at a, at a dinner party and talk about the fact that they own a hundredth of an elephant translocation. No, they don't. That's marketing. And so really mm -hmm. when we look at it, Robbie, what, what is the biggest issue facing conservation? It's not pro and anti-hunting. It's, it, it's very, very, very simple. 
It's the number of people on the planet. And mm -hmm. nobody... So I want to ask you another thing as well. And again, I'm part of the photographic safari industry. I love taking people on trips. But when last did you see a violent reaction towards a Facebook post that talks about a lodge using a million liters of water? Right. Let's talk about that for you a don't. second. You don't see that. And yet is using a million liters of water out of an ecosystem which doesn't have that not even worse than killing an animal because you're going to kill them all eventually. And so when we start to look at that, how many lodges are there that put a water hole in front of the lodge so that the guests can see the animals drinking from the water hole, but they've actually established permanent water where there shouldn't be permanent water, which boosts certain wildlife populations. Now the predators start coming and living there and the rarer wildlife that used to live there either gets eaten or displaced and your biodiversity drops because a guy wants to have a water hole in front of his lodge so his guests can sit there. Mm -hmm. Nobody mm -hmm. talks about that stuff and that's far more harmful. And so what my point is, Robbie, is that if we use the word sustainable and ethical whenever we're talking about conservation, we can get a long way with that. Is the hunting of a big bull sustainable and ethical? Is the yes, building... that is the key question here. The, and I haven't asked the questions, and this is a good point because we're at the end, you know, getting close to the end of this podcast. The biggest question lobbied against this hunt is this. This was only a trophy hunt. This was not a hunt that was done for conservation. My response is this. I'd like to hear yours. My response is yes. It probably was a trophy hunt. The hunter was probably not hunting for conservation. Absolutely. More than likely, that's the majority of most hunters going to Africa. However, take the action and the motivate, take the motivation of the individual out of it. And let's look at the benefit and the consequence of the action. In my mind, the benefit and the consequence of the action is conserving I, I will say this i'll even I'll, I'll even go further than that the the action itself i don't believe for that specific elephant for the elephant population of ng13 had a conservation benefit to the elephant because there's so many and the quota is so small however it did have a economic impact a social impact for the people of that area so, Robbie, Correct I think me what I said wrong there, Ivan. So I think that is the conservation benefit. So we are asking for the wildlife to pay for itself. So if the community is satisfied, they're going to poach less. If they are satisfied, because if you and I are sitting there with empty stomachs, we're going to poach for food. One thing people forget as well is that in many of the Bantu languages spoken across Africa, the word for meat and the word for animal is the same word. So you don't say, look at that animal. You say, look at that meat. And so if you have an empty stomach, Everything that represents an income or meat is fair game. So if that elephant satisfied a community, if it generated an income for an outfitter and taxes and everything else that goes on with that, if it managed to support an element of anti-poaching, that is the conservation benefit. Because every animal living in that ecosystem that that elephant's money is protecting is a beneficiary of that elephant dying. But because it was a big elephant, 
it allows more money to be charged for every single other Botswana elephant because everybody wants to shoot one like that. And so therefore, the $10 million number that we spoke about earlier is that is what that elephant put back into conservation was $10 million worth of income per year, Robbie. Not just this year, next year and the year after. Next year, another big one will be killed or two. And they are going to, by virtue of being killed, they are going to keep the price up. And so, again, let's look back. Let, let's take a, a 60,000 foot view and say, okay, this is just a series of hard questions. Are elephants endangered in Botswana? No. Does Botswana need money for conservation? Yes. Do elephants generate money for conservation? Yes. Had that elephant probably bred before it was killed? Yes. Will a hunter pay more money for a big for an, to hunt in an area where he might see a big tusker? Probably. Is there a, is there a photographic tourist that would expect some money back if they didn't see that elephant on a general safari? Probably not. So now we start looking. Those are just the cold, hard answers to cold, hard questions. So if you get enough of those, you can come back and say, okay, was that ethically responsible, responsibly and ethically managed? Was there a permit? Yes. Was there a game scout? Yes. Was the community, you know, remunerated? Yes. Did, you know, everything is in place for it to happen legally. So if you now start to hamper that whole system that has been working very well in that country, you, that's going to be detrimental to hunting, much like it much like what happened in Tanzania. So the poaching in Botswana, and this is another just cold, hard, uncomfortable fact, was higher when the hunting blocks were closed because they didn't have anybody driving around in it. And by virtue of simply the presence of people in those areas, the poachers had a hard time getting in undetected. And so, Robbie, really, mm -hmm. when you look at it, it comes down to semantics, is if you don't like hunting, let me back up. The person who says he goes on a hunt to feed a village or to hunt for conservation, I hate to say this, is not being honest. Because no, that's of course. not. That's what, and, that, and that's the key, right? People are saying that it is not being honest if you're not saying that this is a trophy hunt. Yes. Yes. And so you've got to say, I go on a hunt for the joy of the pursuit and what I get out of that hunt. That's not the reason. However, the benefit of me spending my hard-earned dollars on a hunt is schools are built, clinics are built, communities are looked after, anti-poaching is looked after. You get outfitters. Why shouldn't an outfitter make money? Everybody else So, Ivan, the, the argument to that is, okay, the guy has lots of money. The guy's just coming to, to take a trophy. Why doesn't he just cut a check? Send the check-in. You don't have to come kill the elephant. Just send the check-in. Because he's doing it. You're taking away his whole reason for coming. He wants to have that experience of tracking and killing an elephant. And that's the part, people, you just have to accept that. You don't have to like the guy that does it. But we should be grateful he's going to spend that much money doing it. Yeah, I guess. So if you, you know, have a I golf my course. Answer, like, yeah. if, you, if you and I own a golf course, do we have to like everybody that pays green fees? I guess not. 
If you have a shop, do you have to like everybody that comes to your shop? Well, you can you can selectively you know tell people to get out if they're not doing right, but no. And so, really, if we look at the pragmatic, responsible use of a resource, by virtue of the word use, we are going to use it to either generate funding or to generate something, in this case, funding. So as long as the person is controlled within a set of ethics and he conducts himself, himself appropriately, I don't care whether we like the guy or not. The fact that he paid money to do it and many after him will continue to do so is what is funding conservation. We don't have to like those guys, but we have to mm -hmm. like the dollars that they're putting into conservation. Mm -hmm. So the simple well farmer's maths. Let's just look at this really quickly here. So if there's 400 elephants, um, let's just say 400 elephants, and we're going to say that an average elephant hunt in Botswana is going to be $75,000, which would be a, a problem. So let's, let, let's use the numbers that I know. So last year was $30,000 for the quota um, per elephant. And I believe that Leon said this year the elephant tag per by elephant is $50,000. But we're going to talk the about the retail because that, that is what you have to pay government. I'm talking about retail now. Where no, but the government, the government tag is the one that we should be focusing on. The okay, government so tag is the one that we should say, and I believe that they would. They would increase their tag fee and people would still pay it. They've increased it since last year and they're paying it. So here's what I'd like to say is that your government fee, I agree with you. That's the money that gets paid to government. As a visiting hunter, you don't just pay for that. Now you pay an outfitter for the business of building your camp and driving you around and, and you are employing people through that, that money. So there's a fee on that. Then on top of that, you've got a community benefit fee that goes on top of that. And so by the time the guy gets out the door, he's paying between seventy-five dollars and $85,000 at retail for that elephant. That's how much money is going into the industry, not just to government, but into the industry. So if we make it seventy-five grand, because that's probably the average, that's going to be $30 million that 400 elephants out of over 100,000, so it's less than half of 1%, are generating enough money to fund all of the conservation over millions and millions of acres of Botswana. So let's look at it from a different direction. Let's say I came to you, Robbie, and you were the king of Botswana. We're going to imagine that for a minute. Put a big hat on and sit on a giant throne. And I come to you and I say, you know what? I'm going to pay you $30 million and I want to remove 400 elephants out of your 130,000. I'm going to pay you $30 million a year. And that's going to be spread between communities, some business owners, a bunch of it's going to go to you, the government. Yep. If you are looking for a responsible and ethical way to make sure that you're funding your conservation, you would turn around and you'd go, that's interesting, $30 million. Well, would that have to be instead of what I earn from photographic tourism? No, as well as that. Would it have to be instead of what I earn for diamonds? No, as well as that. Well, I've got an elephant problem. I know this is not going to affect the elephant problem, but I do have an excess of elephants. So selling you know, half of 1% of them for $30 million, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Yeah, let's do it. And there you have it. Well, let's... Well I keep adding questions because it's the perfect opportunity to ask questions. Yes, they have an elephant problem. So, Ivan, why are they not purposely, from a hunting perspective, 
targeting the problem elephants. And I think why go got... after the big, big, big trophy? And I think that's not helping the people. That's not helping the villages where they need help. You need they need help where the conflict is. So go after those elephants. So there is also a, a, a conflict or a problem animal quota, but that is not for a visiting hunter to participate in. Those problem elephants are ones that the government take care of. Um, they're elephants that are known crop raiders, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I want to just say that the elephant population is not just because of the crops and the people. The elephant problem and the elephant population is much more about the reduction in biodiversity in the areas where there are these big concentrations of elephants, around the Okavango, up on the Chobe River, and places like that, where that would take a, a, a concerted effort. And let's be honest, a trophy hunter is after a trophy, and he's going to pay the big money to come on a trophy hunt. What we are talking about is large-scale elephant management, where one would have to look at moving thousands of elephants off that landscape, whether it's translocating them to other landscapes, which is a whole nother conversation we don't have time for now of what that actually takes. And as a foundation, we do that quite a lot, um, not at that sort of scale, or whether it is taking that, looking at it as protein and feeding it to impoverished communities of which there are many living in that region. One way or another, if it's a resource that is not responsibly utilized, it's going to diminish. There's not a resource on this planet that won't diminish if it's not responsibly utilized. So, you know, whenever I'm doing a talk or, or even, a, uh, you know, having a chat to somebody like you, Robbie, is you say, okay, well, step one, do we all agree that all natural resources should be utilized responsibly? Well, yeah, they should. Do we all agree that wildlife is a very, very important resource? Yeah, probably is. So therefore, do we not agree that wildlife should be utilized responsibly? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So if I said to you that with the killing of one large elephant bull every year, I can generate an extra $10 million, if you were the king of the world, what would that prospect sound like to you? Mm -hmm. Probably pretty good. Mm -hmm. How are you going to generate $10 million from one elephant? By proving to people that there is a chance that they could kill one like this, and then they all pay an extra $25,000 on their tag fees. And, and mm -hmm. that's exactly what happens. That's why Botswana, as it stands today, is the most expensive place to hunt elephant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said, Ivan. Well said. Well, I know I wanted to have a good, strong conversation with you, and that has certainly proved true. Um, and again, I just want discussions, right? I want discussions about... Um, elephant conservation and biology and um, I want to just have put information out there for people to really suck in and consider and decide for themselves like they can listen to this and they can still be anti-hunting at the end of it okay no problems um, but we've tried our best to provide the not an opinion but rather here is the reality of what is happening and you make your own decision. Well, that's exactly right. And I think that I think that at the end of the day, what one has also got to look at, Robbie, and one thing I really hope people get from this is let's base our decisions on facts, not opinions. And whether or not we like the pursuit, let us understand the value of this pursuit to conservation on the bigger picture and the bigger scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ivan. It's been amazing. I'll do it again, you. I'm sure, in the future. Thank you, Robbie. I appreciate you a lot.
Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.